Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. And a special hello to all of you who are hearing this transmission on one of our affiliate stations, the podcast at TalkZone.com, the Conspiracy Show app, of course, the YouTube stream, and hello to all of you in the YouTube stream chat room. Wherever and however you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Coming up in just moments... Author, researcher, Donald Jeffries. He's standing by. A previously Don penned Hidden History. He has a brand new book out, which won't be published, or won't be available, rather, until June or July. It's called Survival of the Richest, uh, in which Don shines a light on the monumental economic inequality in America. That's coming up momentarily. In the second hour, Dr. Cass Ingram returns to the program. Uh, For years, Cass, the health hunter, has uh, been extolling the uh, virtues of wild of oregano extract oil, or oil uh, extract, as a cure-all, an ancient remedy that, um, well, there's just a stack of of scientific studies, peer-reviewed studies, uh, showing how oil of oregano can knock out all manner of uh, viruses. But tonight... Uh, coming up in hour two, Cass will be here to talk about turmeric. Uh, this is this. Uh, it's uh, it's re- it's in the ginger family. It's a herbaceous plant. It's a very powerful spice, and it contains a number of bioactive compounds with powerful medicinal properties. Uh, it's a natural anti-inflammatory. Uh, it's it, it's said to dramatically increase the antioxidant capacity of the body. So, uh, Dr. Cass Ingram will be along in the second hour to talk about turmeric. Uh, What's in the box is coming up shortly. First, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Flying V Gibson guitar, our technical producer, Ian Robertson, my fine rockabilly friend. And uh, are you touring around town? Anything coming up, uh, Ian, and and your band that we need to know about? Uh, Not at the moment. Not at the moment. All right. And the name of the band again is? Grease Marks and also Ruthless Ones. Ruthless Ones. And do you have a website? Yep, for both. What is it? Uh, both ruthlessones.com or greasemarks.com. Greasemarks.com and ruthlessones.com. All right. And um, our erstwhile, not erstwhile, our, our remote viewer in training and our story producer on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, Albert Venzel is in the house. And finally, on the Hammond B3, our intern and producer of my weekly feature, Strange Planet, Ryan White. Um, I wanted to give you a heads up as well. Uh, in a couple of weeks, the Conspiracy Show is going to look a little bit differently on the uh, the YouTube stream and sound a little different for those checking us out on terrestrial radio. It's uh, it's time, I guess, for kind of a, a fresh coat of paint. And so we're, we're going to be rejigging the format slightly, which means, in a nutshell, uh, more guests and more open lines. And uh, as I say, we're looking at upping the uh, the production values on the YouTube stream as well. Incidentally, we are streaming uh, on live on YouTube tonight. So just go to YouTube and search The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And be sure to hit the subscribe button. We've set a modest goal of 10,000 subs uh, sometime in 2017, and we're almost halfway there. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
uh, be sure to hit the uh, subscribe button. Now, my little guys, they watch YouTube constantly, and they have, they've got about three or four favorite YouTubers. I don't know if you're familiar, if your children or your grandchildren are watching these guys, Sunday and Craner. And uh, who are some of the other ones? Uh, Dan TM. I can't think of their names, but these these guys are rock stars, and they're they're they play uh, games on YouTube, and they have some of them have like 80 million subscribers, <laughs> and as I say, they go on tours, they fill arenas, they go up on stage, and uh, they're the new generation of rock stars. So I'm I'm just looking for 10,000 subs. A pretty modest goal, and only you can help me get there. So again, go to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett and uh, hit the uh, subscribe button. Also, please uh, say hello and follow me on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. All right, uh, time for What's in the Box, and this is where you get to uh, utilize your remote viewing skills, transcending time and space and determine what is concealed in the cigar box uh, to my left. So I ask you all to direct your attention, again, to the cigar box on my studio desk to my left, here at Zoomerplex, located at 70 Jefferson Avenue, in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. There. Now you have the coordinates. Focus. Focus. Allow the shape, the texture, the color, the size of the object in the box to form in your mind. And if you'd like to participate in our remote viewing experiment, you must tweet. You must tweet and use the hashtag TCS Remote. TCS as in The Conspiracy Show Remote. Hashtag TCS Remote. And one of you will win some fabulous Conspiracy Show merchandise Please take a moment, visit the online store at theconspiracyshow.com. We will reveal what's in the box at the bottom of the hour, but quickly, let's go around the horn. Ian, what's in the box? Uh, I'm seeing, like, dough, like, close to, like, nan bread. Interesting. All right. Yeah. You're seeing nan bread or <laughs> dough. Yeah. All right. And, uh, Albert? Okay, well, your unconscious has the answer, so it's just a matter of being still. But I get red and blue, maybe something to do with the Leafs or the hockey playoffs. Uh, I guess like a casino-rama playing chip or the hockey puck. You had it before. All right. (laughs) You're all over the place with that one, Albert. And uh, Ryan, finally over to you. I see like a cloth or a rag that's been dried up. A cloth or a rag that's been dried up. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it is cold and flu season. Is that uh, a used tissue, perhaps? You wiped a table, and then you put it in there, and it dried up. Oh, I see. All right. All right. As I say, we'll do the reveal at the bottom of the hour. Again, if you'd like to participate in our remote viewing experiment, use the hashtag TCSremote. Uh, Don Jeffries' new book, Survival of the Richest, scrutinizes how the collective wealth of America has been channeled from the poor and middle class into the hands of a few elites. Thanks to disastrous trade deals, outsourcing, and the crippling of unions, American industry has been gutted with wages and benefits stagnant or reduced. The Occupy Wall Street movement and the presidential campaigns of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump reveal how much more and more people who are struggling understand that the system is rigged against them. Don Jeffries argues that this record economic inequality is more than an unintended consequence of globalism. 
in survival of the richest. He shows how the consolidation of wealth may be the greatest conspiracy of all. Don is the author of The Unreals, a novel lauded by the likes of multiple award-winning author Alexander Theroux and the and Night at the Museum screenwriter R. Ben Garrant. His first non-fiction book, Hidden History, has earned the praise of everyone from political operative Roger Stone, who wrote the foreword, to international peace activist Cynthia Sheehan, to former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney. And his latest, again, is Survival of the Richest, How the Corruption of the Marketplace and the Disparity of Wealth Created the Greatest Conspiracy of All, uh, with a foreword by yours truly. Don, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We should mention the book is available now as a pre-order on Amazon, and um, we, we, we chatted uh, earlier this month, or uh, I think it was earlier this month, <laughs> on, on Coast to Coast, and uh, the book catapulted to uh, the number one economic book and the number two international economic book on Amazon. How is it doing right now? Yeah, it's still holding its own. I mean, it's, it's still a few months from publication, but yeah, it, it went up dramatically after that. So hopefully, it, uh, it'll go up again, and hopefully, when it's actually out there, even more people will uh, check it out. Excellent. And the and the release date again? When is it? When is it available? Uh, supposedly July fourth. So July fourth, but it is available uh, as a pre-order at Amazon.com. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the the first. I mean, you just you just jump in with both feet, and the first several chapters is just you're hammering home how I use the term grotesque really this ec- economic equality or disparity has become in the United States and one of the most telling stats for me is this one uh, and that is 90% of Americans 90% earn less than what min- minimum wage earners made back in 1950 when we adjust for inflation uh, I mean, people need to allow that to sink in. That seems almost incomprehensible. Um, walk us through some more examples that really drive home this economic disparity, if you could, Don. Well, yeah, the statistics are overwhelming, and some of them are, uh, contradict each other slightly, but you, you can get the main point that, uh, obviously, that the, the disparity is there and it's increasing. Uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite statistics that shows how little upward mobility there is is the fact that uh, 77% of people in the upper, the, the richest quadrille of Americans are college graduates. Only 9% of those in the lowest quadrille of Americans are graduate, college graduates. And uh, when you, you, you look at it even further, you can distill it down even further, where most of, there's like 146 colleges that are considered the top colleges. These are the ones that pretty much guarantee a good job. A lot of colleges don't do that anymore, especially with the glut of degrees. And out of those, only 10% of the graduates at those top schools come from the bottom half of Americans. So, in other words, 90% of those who are going to the top colleges are in the upper half of uh, income-wise. So they're already doing well. Their families are doing well. And that's that kind of stands to reason why they're there. But however you look at it, we're so far removed from what Thomas Jefferson thought and the other founders thought of, dreamed of a meritocracy. We definitely did not have a meritocracy in America. So the ladder, the economic ladder, where you 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 climb the ladder of to success, uh, has been replaced by a rope, I guess. Yeah, it's it's just pretty much if you if you're born poor, you, you're pretty much going to stay poor. Uh, I have the exact stats; I don't have them in front of me in in the book, but it's 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 really difficult for the poor even to get to middle class. 
the middle class, only a really a very small minority of middle class people get into that upper quadrant uh, to where they're considered wealthy to any degree. But if you're born wealthy, you usually become wealthier. If you have wealthier parents, you know, you've got a Donald Trump who's born to a multimillionaire father, so it makes it a lot easier to become a billionaire. Uh, <clears throat> and almost all these guys, uh, Bill Gates did not have a middle-class uh, background. His father was president of Planned Parenthood. His mother sat on the, the boards of all kinds of big companies way back in the, you know, in the 50s when women were, most women were stay-at-home mothers. And he comes from a line of, uh, you know, grandfathers that were uh, bank presidents and so forth. All right, Don, we're going to jump, I'll jump in here. We'll take a time out. And, uh, you know, this is not a socialist screed. Uh, this is what's gone wrong with capitalism and how can we fix it? Uh, Don Jeffries, Survival of the Richest. Stay right here. The Conspiracy Show. Back with more in a moment. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up? must come down and it lands on the conspiracy show with richard Serrett. welcome back don jeffries is with us survival of the richest how the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all and it is uh, available pre-order at amazon.com and will be published july the fourth and uh, i was quite honored when don asked me to write the foreword for the book uh... we uh, we're talking about uh, the economic disparity. Let's let's look at the um, some of the excesses of. Uh, I mean, these are legend uh, by now. But but when you actually look at the the numbers, it's it's grotesque. That's a word I used before. Uh, one of the the examples uh, that you, that you mentioned is John Welsh for his uh, 20th anniversary at the helm of General Electric. He received a bonus, a gift of $417 million. Uh, now, is GE paying taxes? Do they pay? Do they actually pay tax? Well, they, they went, uh, he, he probably deserved that bonus because they, they didn't pay taxes at all that year. <laughs> and they've had a couple of years they didn't pay taxes either. And uh, that's a common uh, thread there. You know, one of the uh, little quotes I used at the beginning of the book was from Amaros Beers, who, who defined poor as those unable to pay taxes, for instance, Vanderbilt. <laughs> so it's, yes. it's, it's been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, when they talk about Donald Trump not paying his taxes, it's it's kind of a long tradition, and people just kind of roll their eyes when they say it. Because, But, I mean, theoretically, obviously, the wealthier you are, the more you're supposed to pay. But under our, our system, the loopholes are, are always in favor of, of the wealthier you are, the more loopholes you have. Meanwhile, most of us, all, and all workers, are subjected to uh, withholding taxes. And Social Security part is that you're only taxed the first $119,000. So it's it's the most regressive tax imaginable. So not only do we really have a not have a, a fair graduated income tax anymore because the wealthy often don't pay more uh, or even uh, you know what they would pay under a flat tax, but they actually you know Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett these people are are paying at the rate of someone making $119,000 into that system. And they wonder why the Social Security math is impossible. Uh, it's, it's because uh, they're not taxing all income for it, and they're not means-testing at all, so that the Bill Gates of the world, uh, which is Ross Perot, uh, tried to complain about back in '92. He just wanted to voluntarily not take his Social Security, but instead all these people that don't need it are getting it. So it's, it's a big mess, and all the benefits go to the rich. As, as I quote in the book, uh, affluence means influence, and... If you don't have any affluence, you don't have any influence over those who make the decision. Uh, talk to me about uh, a, a sacred cow in the United States, uh, and that is the National Football League, and, and uh, how much they make and how much the 
uh, the um, that the commissioner makes and how much they pay in tax. Well, I, I think the commissioner's salary that was uh, Goodell was was a twenty, thirty million, something like that. At last report for a few years ago, um, doesn't seem to have that high stress of a job. Uh, and it's one of those jobs, uh, much like the uh, CEOs of uh, the oil companies, where it's kind of hard to to fail at it because you have a built-in product, and Americans are utterly addicted to sports. And football is the, the biggest sport of them all. The NFL is the biggest uh, of all all the sports, even over college football. But uh, what we see is that these billionaires, even though they expect the workers to be able to, uh, they chastise them for uh, not being able to pay the loans that they were qualified for by banks who gave them loans. But when it comes time for them to build stadiums, to put, they, they don't uh, go by the uh, decrees of the marketplace then. They don't put their own money in there. Instead, they come running to the taxpayers for a handout. And I'm talking about a real handout, not the kind of handout that you might get upset about the if a woman's have had an extra baby on welfare or something, a little bit that she gets extra for that. We're talking about millions, even billions of dollars. And it's, it's every time they build a new stadium, that's what they do. They threaten to move the team. And uh, most areas are so addicted to this game that they pay. It's basically bribery. I mean, they, they basically, uh, you know, extort them, extort the money from them. And uh, the, the politicians are all huge fans. I mean, because the NFL is powerful, so you have to be a fan of it. And so they always go along with it. No one ever, very few voices, uh, I quote Senator Tom Coburn in there. It's a few politicians, but the vast majority of them uh, are all too happy. We see about the traditions of, you know, the president inviting the winning teams and all the sports to the White House. We're, we're a totally sports-addicted nation, and, and politicians are no different than uh, most sports fans. The, but the, and the NFL, what is it, uh, uh, something like a $9 billion a year industry? Yeah, and it's, and it's tax exempt because it's considered a non-profit. This <laughs> is something I learned from the book. I had no idea. The yeah, NFL yeah. is considered non-profit. Yeah, yeah. How do they swing that? Well, again, they they have all the politicians. There's nobody. Nobody wants to go against uh, <clears throat> against something as powerful as the NFL. The NFL is very, very powerful, and uh, it, it it strays over into our uh, into the cultural aspect and even the celebrity aspect where. Americans are utterly addicted to celebrities. They're addicted to that kind of culture, and these sports stars become celebrities, and some of the owners do as well. And uh, no one wants to stand up to them, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. But again, it, t- it takes courage, and most of our politicians uh, are, are severely lacking in courage on all these issues. Couldn't you argue, though, Don, that is one area where it is still a meritocracy? I, I read a statistic once. There are more qualified brain surgeons than there are people who can play baseball at the major league level. They often say hitting a round ball with a round bat that's traveling 100 miles an hour is one of the most difficult feats in professional sport. I'm not saying that anyone's worth you know, a five-year, $100 million deal or whatever it is, but at least there is a meritocracy. And for many people, that's the rung on the ladder for them. Well, yeah, I think I think to some extent sports is a pure and, and baseball. I certainly would argue because I, I agree with you. Having played sports, uh, I, I've always thought that hitting a baseball is, is the hardest thing to do in any sport. But as I mentioned, something in the book uh, for uh, basketball players and football players, especially, uh, it's largely a size driven. For instance, Shaquille O'Neal was a superstar in basketball, but I think if he had been six feet tall, I don't know that he could have made his high school team. Because he wasn't a good dribbler, he you know he really wasn't a good passer. He certainly wasn't a good shooter, other than the fact he could bang his huge body around and you know slam home jams. And uh, I think when you're seven feet tall, very few people are seven feet tall. So I, guess, I think it gives you a huge uh, 
leg up, and I have a quote from Donald Luck, and there's everything in life is luck, and I think luck, you know, genetics is certainly luck, and I have all the stats in the book where, you know, just having blonde hair gets you more money, having, being a little bit taller, the taller you are, I, I don't know what the exact stat is for every inch taller you are, but you make more money on average, and people tend to look at you as a leader, and uh, it's it's just, I don't know if that shows that we are uh, a plastic society, you know, very uh, shallow, but uh, in, in terms of athletes, I agree with you that it's it's more of a meritocracy. But I still think that um, luck plays a large degree, in it. and certainly I would look at the at the billions that the owners make from it first. But uh, and it's really the major two sports where the athletes make out like bandits are baseball and basketball because their their contracts are 100 percent guaranteed. And uh, football, although it's the biggest sport, the owners control their players a little bit better than the other. Uh, Sports do because those those only the signing bonuses typically are uh, guaranteed in football. So for some reason, even though it's the biggest sport, they have the by far. The, I don't. I guess contracts are slightly better than the NHL, but not much. Right, and the average career is only about five years, and the average right. lifespan of an ex NFLer is not right. is it's disturbingly you know very right. low for a lot of. Uh, well, I mean that just you just you know I guess they just they sacrifice that, but yeah, when you're when you're taking those kind of collisions constantly, I mean it's not. You know, it's not something that, that that very few people do. So yeah, you, you, you run into the same thing in re, in pro wrestling. Although it's uh, obviously it's scripted and it's entertainment, they are flinging their body around, and they have a very short life expectancy. Wrestlers do, right? Because they're they're you know they're taking lots of falls and so forth. And uh, so yeah, I mean I I, I'm not, I didn't mean to you know really come down on athletes too much in there, but I think there's just something fundamentally wrong in a <clears throat> in a society that values so much. You know, being able to stuff a ball through a hoop or, 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 or catch a football or whatever. Or even actors. Is Keanu Reeves yeah. really worth, nice fella, a good yeah. Winnipeg boy, but is he worth $100 million a movie? Exactly. I, I just think that, uh, you know, you have, you have tons of, so many people that try to make it in Hollywood and go out there and never make it. So the, for, the fortunate few, I understand it's, it's probably something like the athletes where they're, although I don't think it's the same meritocracy, I think they're probably... Lots of other actors out there just didn't get the breaks, and that may uh, hold to some degree with athletes as well. But um, it, it just seems a little excessive, the kind of money. And, and but that may change if we continue going down this path, and the economy continues in the direction that it's going. Eventually, people will just stop being able to go to movies. And in, in sports, it's artificially being kept afloat, especially the NBA. The NBA does not draw big crowds at all. And, and if you'll notice that when they're on television. They tend to stray. They don't go up in the stands much because they don't want you to see all the empty seats. But corporate America especially really backs the NBA. Right. And it's the, the luxury suite. boxes. Yeah. yeah, they have the Sky Suite boxes everywhere, and they'll give tickets to their employees and so forth. And merchandising is huge. Yes, merchandising is huge. And I, I would argue really that the only two sports that have any really solid fan bases uh, are, are baseball and hockey. Hockey has a huge fan base, mm. and, and so does baseball. And they're both... Especially baseball, because they play 162 games, it's it's still affordable for a family, as compared to you know NFL game is you know 16 game season, so right. I have the ticket prices in there, and it's just it's it, it's hard for anybody unless you're given tickets by your company again, and some people do get those perks, and I think a lot of those people you see in the st- in the stands at those games are getting free tickets. I know certainly uh, most of the time as an adult when I took my kids to the games, uh, most of the time it's because I got free tickets. And uh, that was even then. Now, I, I just, you know, I, I love sports. I was a season to get over for the Caps hockey team uh, years ago, but um, I, 
I think I wrote that in the book about how much it cost back in the early 80s as opposed to what it would cost now, and it would just be working the same kind of job that I had, a kind of a, a starting blue-collar job. You just can't do it, so they've, they've really priced fans out of it, and uh, it's being artificially kept afloat, but if it eventually gets to the point where they don't have that core baseball fans or it just gets too expensive, and certainly with movies, with films, if people just say, you know what, I, I, I can't go and, and spend uh, $15 a ticket or whatever it is now um, to see a movie that I, you know, I don't have any idea if I'm going to like. And um, I think eventually they're going to feel that. But right now they're enjoying everything. They're getting their $100 swag bags and $100,000 swag bags. And I wrote in the book, I, you can find it online in mainstream uh, sources, that the average celebrity gets about $100,000 a year in free stuff. And that's obviously much about more than double what the average American makes every year in right. salaries. Those who who can most afford it seem to get everything thrown at them, free meals, and right. they can't buy a drink to save their lives. Uh, Don Jeffries is with us, Survival of the Richest, How the Corruption of the Marketplace and the Disparity of Wealth Created the Greatest Conspiracy of All. Uh, but this isn't class... Envy. Uh, I mean, you're a you're a capitalist, right? This is not a this is not an anti-capitalist screed. You're saying we had a great system. Somewhere along the line, it went off the rails. We have to get it back on track. Yeah, I, th- I think the system as devised by the founders is, is about as perfect a system as can be. But the problem is, in the political arena, the checks and balances which were meant and, and brilliantly devised by the founders to stop the concentration of power. Populists like me, that's what we hate. We hate too much concentrated power anywhere. And what has happened is the legislative branch a long time ago gave up its its power. And as a result, the judicial branch and the executive branch are way more powerful. It's completely out of whack. Now that's and we keep reelecting the you know the legislature ninety six percent clip every election. So whether you know, maybe they're not counting the votes. So either way, we're screwed. The elections are rigged, or the populace just doesn't know what it's doing. But in, in terms of uh, of capitalism, I, I believe in free enterprise. But what we have, I think, now the system is is devolved into a corporatism, corporatocracy, or uh, crony capitalism. And you can see when you, it's it's not there is. John D. Rockefeller said a long time ago, competition is a sin. And you can whether you're going to uh, gas stations or uh, buying the latest toy or, or whatever, movie theaters, everywhere you go, the prices are pretty much standard. Restaurants, uh, you're not going to have a whole lot of, of choice. Like if you want to buy a gallon of milk, it's pretty much going to be within a few cents at every grocery store. And that's that's where, uh, in my mind, a, a true free enterprise system, if I'm owning a gas station across the street from another guy, I'm going to lower it a couple cents just to try to get more people in. Now, that may reach a point where, okay, you can't lower it anymore, but you don't see that. What we see instead is we see they look at what, you know, they both have the same price. If it drops, it drops identically. If it goes up, it goes up identically. And uh, people just don't have any uh, kind of choices with that. It's, it's you know, we'd like to be able to, uh, and most people don't have time, like, for instance, to shop and, and compare. I mean, there are... A lot of people would, for instance, would not would like to go somewhere else other than Walmart because of its business practices. But in many areas, that's all that's there, and uh, they may not have the option of, uh, you know, they have to drive ten miles to find a shirt that that they can afford that's even close to what they can get at Walmart. So, and certainly to try to buy American. I, you know, we all hear people saying buy American. Well, there's not much made in America. I mean, try buying an American electronic product. Try buying an American computer or an American television. We've outsourced on that. Much of the book, as you know, is is, is about that, and that was uh, one of Donald Trump's most appealing uh, 
aspects of this campaign when he was talking about uh, bringing industry back and all, all the outsourcing and offshore uh, stuff that the businesses have done. And, and I think he meant it. I, I think he meant it. I mean, somewhere along the line, someone, when he was attempting to drain the swamp, the swamp started to drain him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, perhaps uh, the, uh, the globalists... Uh, snuck in through the back door and they seem to have his ear right now but I'm not ready to throw in the towel I think he may still be our last best hope Don Jeffrey stays with us survival of the richest how the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all right here on The Conspiracy Show my name is Richard Serrett don't go away this is no place for the naive or the faint hearted The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett welcome back Don Jeffries is with us. Survival of the richest. How the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all. It's available at Amazon pre-orders, that is, and it will be out July the 4th. So, when did this start to go wrong? When did the the ladder, climbing the ladder, one rung at a time, the um, pursuit of the American dream, go by the boards? I think, you know, Horatio Alger's stories have, have always been overplayed and exaggerated in the media. For instance, if you go to my blog, I have a, a long chapter on celebrities and uh, just famous people of all walks of life and uh, how a huge percentage of them tended to come from at least upper middle class, if not wealthy backgrounds. And this goes way back. But there's no doubt about it. You know, at least up until, I would say, the 80s is when we really started to see the disturbing trend we see now, you know, with the Reagan era tax cuts, and I think that had a lot to do with it. I, I don't like uh, higher taxes, but I think it's indisputable that when you have those higher tax rates on the wealthy, that just coincided with the best years in terms of uh, the economy that America's ever seen. Now, they certainly benefited from the post-war era boom. But, but JFK was a big tax cutter, and that grew the middle class. In JFK's case, I think it, his tax cut benefited more the middle class. Certainly, the, I think we all, you know, pay too much in taxes. And what I try to stress is what we're getting in return for those taxes. We're certainly not, you know, a lowly tax nation. But if you looked at our services that we get, you certainly got our infrastructure. Another point that Trump drilled home. He's the first candidate to do that in a long time. Our, our nation is literally crumbling. Our roads and bridges and railroads and what we have out there is for any kind of uh, mass transit is woeful compared to other first world nations. I mean, our, our roads especially are embarrassing. But, you know, when you spend time on all this foreign policy intervention and bombing and occupying and corporate welfare and so forth, you neglected something for so long. And you see now it's, it's, it's a huge job to try to repair it. But I think that we have to do something about that if we're going to be a first world nation. But certainly in the 80s, I don't believe the term CEOs was in common usage before that time. Once we, we got out of the uh, the last of the hippie era where the country seemed to be drifting left and then uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency was considered a disaster with the high interest rates and the Iran hostages and so forth. But after that, you know, Reagan was viewed as, you know, he was bringing us back, kind of making America great again. It was a new morning in America, whatever. But I think a lot of America was ready for that. And he there was a boom for a while, much as there was in the 90s. But I think the collapse would have come sooner. I think we had an artificial stimulus in the 90s with the dot-com boom, which no one could have foreseen. And a lot of people made money on that pretty quickly, including some people that weren't rich, like people who worked at AOL and so forth. But once the dot-com boom evaporated, then we started to see, okay, look, we've, we've spent, especially once NAFTA was passed and, and all these awful trade deals that, again, Trump talked about, 
We have no factories left. There's no industry in America. And all those people that used to work in the factories and have good jobs that didn't go to college, they're still out there, but they have nowhere to go. And the constant plea from politicians is this tired rhetoric about education and getting up. Well, college education is worth less with each college degree, obviously. You flood the market and its value diminishes. We see that now, even though, again, as I put, most of those college degrees are going to the people at the top. They're not going to the people at the bottom who aren't able to afford a college, or they just realize there's no point to it. I call public education triage. They're essentially creating serfs for the new global economy so that they can stack boxes of cheap Chinese imports. Yeah. Again, unless they're going to those top colleges, which only the people that are already coming from wealthy families are able to get an Ivy League and so forth. But people that are going to colleges in their area, their state university, certainly anybody going to community college and transferring to a four-year college, Unless they have a very specialized degree, if they're able to go to law school or something, they're coming out with a business degree or degree, something like if I was going to college, I'd get a history degree or an English degree or something. And unless you become a teacher, which you're not exactly going to make a great salary at that either, it's really not worth very much. It's certainly not worth the cost if you're in that lower income level and you have to, as uh, so many college students have to, go in debt with a student loan. And the average student loan, I believe, is uh, 32000 now. And that's just criminal because what kind of a job do you have to get to pay that kind of loan back? That's like putting no money down on a a really good car, you know, how long it would take you to pay it off. And that's what's happening is so many of these kids are realizing that uh, it wasn't worth it. That's why you have videos out there like the college conspiracy that you hate to discourage people from going to college. But the problem is unless you can get in those top schools, you're coming into a job market where they're going to offer you jobs that used to require only a high school degree. And they're going to pay you maybe $30,000 a year. And if you've already got 30000 or more in debt, how long is it going to take you to pay that off? And student loans are not even able to be wiped out by bankruptcy. So you're stuck with that. And uh, whenever anybody's talked, Obama kind of flirted, I think, with the idea of at least lowering the rate or something. But we're long overdue for a year of Jubilee. And I, I think that would be one way to stimulate the economy. Well, we'll, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll, uh, oh, we've got to do uh, the reveal for what's in the box. And then we'll uh, learn about the year of Jubilee. And also, time permitting, I want to talk a little bit about another populist back in the 1930s down in Louisiana. They called him the Kingfisher, Huey Long the governor of uh, Louisiana, who was, uh, turns out, a very dangerous man and paid the ultimate price for his populist views. Don Jeffries is with us. Survival of the Richest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4. 740. All right, before we get back to our conversation with Don Jeffries, author of Survival of the Richest, we'll do the uh, What's in the Box reveal. Let me just uh, go to the uh, the Twitter feed here. Heidi, I thought it was a hockey puck. Adam, an egg beater. Sapphire, a sponge. Uh, Heidi, um, this is a different Heidi. You know, the same Heidi is now coming in, uh, weighing in with uh, a rock, a deplorable artist, and Alexander the Great Drachma, circa 30, 321 B.C., uh, Hector says a toy. Amanda, three pennies. Drew, a silver or gold coin, possibly a piece of gold or silver jewelry. Ross, I see something green, sort of pickle-shaped, a pickle. Ed, a piece of candy. Leo, a white golf ball. Eric, a binder clip. Ed, a tea bag. 
Paul Smith, a chain necklace, paper clips joined or some sort of links, and James Grimmer, a pair of sunglasses. Sally, I see something roundish and fuzzy, a sheep with lots of curly wool, a cute toy sheep. And uh, Benjamin, cinnamon toast or breakfast item? <laughs> All right. Sorry. Here we are. It is... Da-da-da-da, timpani. There we go. Domino. Domino. Thanks for playing along. All right. Back to uh, Don Jeffrey's Survival of the Richest. You talk about how the messages of people like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump really resonated with a lot of uh, voters uh, this year because of that message, that the system is rigged. Both sides were saying that. But I want to dial back. You spent some time talking about Huey P. Long, the governor of Louisiana. Now, was let me ask you, was, was Huey, in your estimation, a socialist? Because he certainly sounded like one. No, I believe Huey was populist. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people would think I sound like a socialist too. Uh, pop, uh, what Huey? I mean, for instance, his tax system would have been fair to the wealthy, at least to the, other than the one percent of the one percent. What he proposed under the Sharon Royal Society was to exempt the first million dollars from taxes. Now, this this was hardly uh, and to just consider the ramifications. Then that you know, one million then would be like what I don't know, fifty, hundred million or something today. So just imagine if, he, if, if what wealthy person wouldn't want that. But the problem is everything over that million was going to be gradually taxed, I think, 10%, 20%, up to like 100, uh, at 10 million, I believe it was 100%. So anything over 10 million was 100%. So you know who he's going after. He wasn't like a, a Roosevelt of his day or a Bill Clinton or a Lyndon Johnson back in his day or Hillary Clinton or a Nancy Pelosi, the so-called liberals that we have now. They, when they talk about taxing the rich, it all invariably falls on the middle class, maybe some lower members of the one percent. But the one percent, the top of the one percent, the one percent of the one percent who have the most wealth—that's where you have to go to get the money. And Huey Long realized that then. And I think the proof that he wasn't a socialist is in the fact that he wanted to exempt the first million dollars from taxation, and he also was uh, smeared after his death by the Socialist Party of America. The Communist Party of America. Now, they should have been a hero to, to, to them, but they weren't because they didn't want to do that. They weren't looking to do that. They were looking for state control and what we see in communist countries everywhere, which is hardly a sharing of the wealth and is really just a kind of a different version of what we see in uh, Latin American dictatorships. And, and it's kind of a meld of that that we're building in America with a kind of a, a third world feel to it where you have all this incredible wealth at the top and uh, especially with the importation of so many people from third world countries to do all the jobs supposedly the Americans won't do, it gives it uh, that third world feel, and eventually you're gonna it, we're gonna start start to resemble a Latin American country because that's when unless Trump or someone else can can quell the tide out, or unless we experience an absolute collapse, that's the direction we're heading. How much of immigration and especially the encouragement of illegal illegal immigration or the unwillingness to address illegal immigration is being driven by these elites who are trying to suppress wages oh i, I think i think all of it is i, I think i think the only, and the only reason i think that the the left doesn't point that out is because of the fact that most of the immigrants are non-white and the left today is so utterly devoted to political correctness they just can't do it and I think that's the only reason why. I think if we were being, you know, invaded by Canadians, you know, and they were majority white, I think you might have a different view from the left because clearly when you have people coming, but of course that's not even a good analogy because Canada's a, 
a country that's uh, on an even par with us. But when you're having people coming from uh, desperate circumstances where, you know, an apartment with 10 other people uh, with air conditioning and heating and cable TV looks great to them, that's an uptick in their standard of living. But what, So I'm not blaming them, and I understand why they want to come here. The problem is they're being exploited, and I think really... The illegal immigrant thing is part of the overall effort. I, I really believe that uh, there's a plantation mentality among those at the top, and I think they would love to have actual slaves back. And, in fact, one point the left never makes, and I, I like to try to point out, is there are 30 million slaves in the world today, including 10 million in India. I don't hear anyone calling for a boycott of India. In fact, uh, you know, Trump had a chance to finally end that H-1B visa program, which has been deadly to the IT industry especially. But I don't hear anyone, uh, no one seems to mind that we're importing, uh, I mean, what are boycotts for? There's, there's a boycott that would have some teeth, but instead we're still talking about the Confederacy in the 1860s, and as if that's the only slavery that ever existed, when there are 30 million slaves in the world today, and uh, uh, lots of them are coming from a country that is flooding our IT industry and, and doing uh, the sort of damage to wages there that uh, illegal immigrants from Latin America have done at the lower end of the spectrum by being exploited and, and willing to work for uh, much cheaper than Americans traditionally ever, ever were asked to work for. Almost 50 million Americans are on food stamps. 50 million. Uh, I mean, how much, how much worse is it going to get? I mean, I'm looking at disruption, disruptive technologies, uh, artificial intelligence. The, the governor of Arizona was all excited because uh, some AI firm was coming to Arizona that was going to introduce driverless vehicles. You've got a country that one in four people work driving truck or something like that. I mean, this is gonna this can only get even worse. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and I talked about all that in the book, but it's it's our leaders have they just simply don't tackle these problems because they don't apply to them, and that's why we talk about affluence means influence. The people at the top are never going to be replaced by an illegal immigrant. They're not going to be replaced by an H-1B visa worker. They're not going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. You're not going to get an AI CEO or an AEI in, in, AI in top management. All they care about is what will, what will artificial intelligence do for my profits. Obviously, they'll, they'll drive down their labor costs even further, and they'll, make, they'll have bigger bonuses every year, and that's all... You know, we, we talked about even going back to the, you know, robber barons. They at least had some kind of you know, consciousness about uh, civic pride and realizing that they had to, uh, something about a greater good, as bad as they were. The ones that we have out there now, have they're absolutely reprehensible. They, they don't, all they care about is how big is my bonus. I'll, I'll lay off 10,000 people and I get 10 million more. Of my, that's all they care about. And we see that over and over again. And, no one's calling them to task for it. You know, Bernie Sanders will have the rhetoric, but Bernie Sanders, one of his proposals during his campaign was to raise the payroll tax. And again, as we pointed out, the payroll tax only falls to those on the payroll, which are the workers, and it only is on the first $119,000. So that 1% he's after wouldn't have paid a penny more. And that's the kind of thing when people hear that, yeah, soak the rich, they don't understand. Just like when uh, I talk to my friends all the time, when Republicans talk about cutting taxes, they have to cut the taxes of those who have the money, who have the income, who have the wealth. So they're going, they're going to t- cut rich people's taxes. Most of us would not get a tax cut under those circumstances, not under any of their plans. So you have to look beyond the rhetoric, and that's why I said that's why I love Huey Long so much because he was the last person that really cut through it all and went after the absolute top, 
That's why he fought with Roosevelt. He understood what FDR was doing. FDR is playing that he basically invented the modern liberal game that Harry Truman followed, and then later uh, Lyndon Johnson, yeah, JFK again went against it in many ways. That's why he was killed. But uh, every liberal Democrat since then has basically idolized uh, FDR, and they play the same game. Where if you see a problem, let's let's create a program. We've right. created a big bureaucracy. $22 trillion has been thrown at poverty since Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty. $22 trillion. Right. Has it alleviated it at all? Yeah, boy, just imagine what would have happened if that $22 trillion had gone directly to the people, which would happen under a Huey Long type thing. Just imagine. You wouldn't have any more poverty, but because it goes into those the black holes and the programs and so forth, and so many people, we talked in the last interview about the poverty industry and Certainly, you get into things like social services that are social workers that are just there's so much abuse there, especially with children. Well, but, those are the new takers, right? I mean, you, you yeah. talk about how Ayn Rand and, and uh, how how pervasive that philosophy is. You ask most CEOs, you know, what are they reading? They'll they'll talk right. about Atlas Shrugged and all of. Yeah. Um, but uh, and she talked about you know the the takers and the makers. Yeah. But to she, me, she the, the uh, yeah, she, she said there's 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 nothing there's no reason why we should be our brother's keeper. You know, that, that, I mean, she, and, and she had declared herself uh, an enemy of God, although she was an atheist. I don't know how that works, but, <laughs> yes. but, uh, but she's a hero of conservatives. All these, you know, the, the Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, all the, and all these, uh, Paul, Paul Ryan and people like these odious politicians we have now. That's why it's so hard to choose. Uh, you know, if you, if you had to choose between like a, a Hillary Clinton type and a Paul Ryan, gosh, just awful. Because we saw he, he managed to do the impossible, and he almost, and he got, again, Trump, one of the first things Trump did that made us, really roll our eyes is when Trump got behind that awful Ryan rewrite of Obamacare. Right. It's, it's hard to make Obamacare worse, but Ryan's would have done that because it would have even given even more power and, uh, to the insurance companies and uh, more breaks to the very wealthy. And that's everything that comes out of that Republican Party. And that's why it's so disturbing that recently what has happened with Trump is because the Republican Party is completely conservatives are driven, and it's, it's largely you know through the love of people like Ayn Rand, they, greed is a virtue with them. They love their job creators. You can't even say the word rich anymore. Job creators, which is well, it is disheartening because many of us were so hopeful uh, that yeah. we finally had a disruptor who got over the wall and uh, was going to shake things up. And as I said earlier, he I think he went in there intending to drain the swamp. And it's still early, but sometimes the 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 the, the swamp drains you. And I think that's what's happening. I think he went in there with. With good intentions, we'll see. It's it's just barely not even a hundred days yet. Um, again, survival of the richest available July the fourth. You can order in advance through Amazon.com. Don, always a pleasure. I hope you'll come back again and again. Anytime, Richard. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Survival of the richest: How the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all. Dr. Cass Ingram will extol the virtues of turmeric. On the other side, in the meantime, don't forget the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hit the sub button, and uh, please follow on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. The website, strangeplanet.ca. As always, follow the truth.